You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we have something slightly different for you. One of the series published in the BMJ is Competent Novice. It's aimed at giving junior, and perhaps more senior doctors who'd like a quick reminder, some really practical advice about a particular area of practice. The most recent one is on sudden death. And in this week's podcast, the BMJ's Mabel Chu gets a step-by-step guide from Paul Frost, a consultant in intensive care medicine at the University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff, and he's also one of the authors on the article. First and foremost, the junior doctor should not be in any way coerced by either nurses or police into doing anything that they're uncomfortable about or don't have sufficient information about how to manage. But before all that, I'm joined by Annabel Ferriman, the BMJ's news editor, who's here to give us a roundup of this week's news. Hi, Annabel. Hi, Duncan. I was going to concentrate on a couple of stories um, that I thought were pretty controversial, two rather interesting tales. Uh, The first relates to the EU and British GPs, while the second one relates to Canada. Um, But the first one is about the prescribing of generic drugs by UK GPs, uh, which is something that, you know, saves a lot of money. Well... Uh, The European Court of Justice's Advocate General has given his opinion that the government's incentive schemes uh, run to encourage GPs to prescribe the generic versions of some drugs might be against European law. So you can imagine it's getting up a lot of people's noses. Yes. But what's quite interesting, I mean, it's interesting at at a time when the NHS is having to tighten its belt that this obvious way of saving money might be denied us, which, Mm -hmm. you know, seems rather tragic. The system at the moment is that GPs get extra payments if they meet targets uh, for the proportion of drugs they prescribe generically. Um, But the case has been brought by the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry, and they're using legislation that was really designed to stop drug companies bribing uh, doctors to prescribe specific drugs because the wording of the law says that it's uh, illegal to offer financial inducements to doctors to prescribe uh, certain products. And they're now trying to use that against trusts like primary care trusts or hospital trusts who say that they will, you know, give an extra financial reward to GPs who prescribe um, generically. So, I mean, it's really being turned on its head in a way, this law. Yes. This could end up with, you know, much higher bills for various PCTs. So, yes. When will we find out about that? Well, next Thursday, uh, the judgment is going to be given. Claire Dial, our legal correspondent, will write about it that day. So we'll try and put it up on the on the website on the on the twenty third. Okay, um, so keep an eye out for that. Yes. Yeah. So what's happening in Canada? Well, um, the second story relates to the Canadian Blood Service, and they've decided that they're no longer going to take blood from anyone who's got a history of chronic fatigue syndrome, and that's quite interesting because. Yes. Uh, it's you know not generally thought to be a disease that can be transmitted through blood or blood products. No. But they were prompted by a paper in Science that came out in October that seemed to show a connection between chronic fatigue syndrome and a particular virus. In this case, it was the xenotropic murine leukemia virus-related virus. Yes. We actually, uh, in a previous podcast, we talked to some authors who published a paper in the BMJ refuting the paper in Science, saying they haven't found a link. Yes, well, that's interesting because I think a lot of people say it was very effectively challenged, that the the idea there was any link. And um, the head of the blood service in Canada, Dr. Dana Devine, acknowledged that new research had come out 
out from the UK and um, the Netherlands. But, she said, they had to err on the safe side. So for the moment, they're telling anybody with a history of um, chronic fatigue syndrome not to give blood. You know, that could exclude quite large numbers of people. It seems possibly a little bit overprotective, but... I haven't heard anything about the UK moving to do the same thing. I would be astonished if they did, actually. Yes. The final story I thought I might mention is the King's Fund report that's come out on the English NHS, which is almost like an end-of-term report looking at what's happened over the last 10 years. It praises the government for bringing in the smoking ban and for bringing down waiting lists and tackling hospital infections and also reducing the number of deaths from stroke and heart attack. But it's very critical of the government for not effectively tackling either the obesity problem or the ever-increasing consumption of alcohol. They're saying that they've been singularly ineffective at dealing with those things. And they cost the NHS a lot of money. Quite, exactly. And they they have quite a nice... um, Quote saying, if the same energy and innovation that went into reducing waiting times and hospital infections could be put into prevention and chronic care, the NHS could become truly world class. So I thought that was that's quite a nice sort of incentive for whoever's elected in May to get cracking on those two issues. Quite a nice report. Okay, well, thank you very much for that, Annabelle. Thanks very much. And we'll look out for the result on the uh, European judgment then next week. Yes. Now, Mabel Chu gets a practical guide on how to deal with the sudden death of a patient. I have with me Dr Paul Frost, who is a consultant in intensive care medicine at the University Hospital of Wales. Paul was one of the authors of an article on managing sudden death for a series called The Competent Novice, designed to help junior doctors in their daily tasks. One of the most difficult things about managing sudden death is that junior doctors aren't really taught the various steps and often events just overtake the junior doctor. Let's take a a scenario of the 19-year-old man who is brought in by an ambulance with multiple stab wounds after a fight. Um, And despite everyone's efforts at resuscitation, he dies in the emergency department. Take us through the next steps. As the junior doctor who's nearest the patient, you're asked to verify death. How does one do that? Well, thank you, uh, Mabel. You're right. It's a very challenging and I think quite a daunting uh, situation for junior colleagues to be in. When you're confronted with a, with a scenario like this one, I think you can usefully break it down into a series of steps. Um, I think the first of these, of course, is that you have to verify the death. And there's a very uh, clear uh, code of practice now from the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges uh, on how you do that. And then from there, you have to consider how the body is going to be laid out, how you're going to assemble and inform the family about what's happened. You have to consider how the family will uh, want to view the body. And then, of course, you have to provide some practical elements, for example, the completion of the medical certificate of the cause of death, you'll need to inform the general practitioner. And I think most importantly, there needs to be an opportunity for the junior doctor to to debrief. Okay. I remember from my days as a junior doctor, the very first time I had to verify death in somebody, I'd never been taught how to do it. Would you like to just take us through briefly how one should ideally verify death? The first thing is that there must be no breath sounds audible to auscultation over at least a five-minute period and no palpable central pulse during that time. 
Now, if during that period of observation there's any spontaneous return of cardiac or respiratory activity, then you need to undertake a further five-minute period of observation. And once you've done that, then you must assess the pupillary responses to light, which of course will be absent, the corneal reflexes, and any motor response to uh, supraorbital pressure, uh, which of course there won't be. And it's at that time that, uh, that death is uh, recorded as having occurred. And ideally, what do you think the junior doctors should document in the notes? Well, I think they have to uh, follow that template quite carefully. Um, I think that they should document that there has been this observed five-minute period of cardiorespiratory arrest. They do need to document the absence of pupillary and corneal reflexes and of any motor response to supraorbital pressure. And at that time, they should clearly document the time of death and then print and sign uh, their name and uh, designation in the hospital. That's very clear. Thank you, Paul. Let's return to our 19-year-old man who's just died in the emergency department. Uh, You've verified death. And the next thing is that the nurses are coming up to you and asking if they can remove the various tubes and drains that are, have been inserted in the body in the resuscitation process. You're also aware that there's been police involvement and there's a, a burly policeman standing in the shadows there who um, might be a little unhappy about items being removed from a body, from a, a forensic scene, so to speak. Would you like to give the junior doctor some tips on how to handle these conflicting uh, requirements so as not to get browbeaten by people? Some of the practical issues that come up here are that the nurses, of course, are very concerned with presenting the body in the, in the best possible light for family viewing, which is going to be very, very difficult and very um, awful, really, for the family but to see your loved one with various tubes in different um, places and, uh, and all the detritus associated with the resuscitation around the, around the body is obviously very disturbing and not desirable. But on the other hand, the police have a duty of care to preserve evidence and, of course, to um, institute an appropriate uh, investigation as to who perpetrated the stabbing. So there is a natural conflict there. First and foremost the junior doctor should not be in any way coerced by either nurses or police into doing anything that they're uncomfortable about or don't have sufficient information about how to manage. Some very practical issues uh, that come up is that very occasionally, and in my view uh, mistakenly, the police can consider that the accident emergency department is actually the crime scene rather than where the death was actually perpetrated. One of the ways around this problem is that, of course, the prime motivation of the police is to preserve life, and clearly closing an area of the accident emergency department would be in direct conflict with that. So discussion here can be quite difficult, and it it really is discussion that junior doctors should defer to senior-informed colleagues. There are some other practical issues. Uh, During the resuscitation, any clothing that has been taken off the patient and any possessions that have been taken away from the patient should be placed in a large plastic bag and clearly labelled with the deceased details because, of course, this this material will be potentially uh, evidence. And then the more difficult issue of trying to convey to the family who will invariably wish to 
come and see their, their loved one and invariably wish to hold or even kiss their loved one, that this is likely to be inappropriate um, until a forensic examination has been conducted. Um, and that can be quite upsetting for the family, but often with sensitive explanation as to why it's necessary, uh, families uh, can accept that. So perhaps the first thing to do under those circumstances is to take a deep breath and don't rush into anything. Absolutely, absolutely. And the whole environment is quite a fraught environment. And I think, you know, taking a step back, um, as you say, taking a deep breath, if you like, um, and then logically breaking down the management issues into, into a sort of series of stages, a series of steps, is very definitely the way to proceed. Mm. Paul, you've alluded to one of those very, very important steps already, and that is how you break the bad news to family. There is no real formula to this, but there are better ways of doing so than others. Would you like to discuss those um, aspects? I can't stress enough how important this is. There are a number of things that junior doctors can do to try and do this in the best way possible. First and foremost, I think that they should attend meetings where bad news is broken at every possible opportunity. And then there are some, some broad rules, really, for how you conduct a meeting like that. I think what's required is a private uh, area in the hospital, typically uh, a relative's room that must be kept uh, clean and presentable. I think it's very important that um, relatives aren't kept waiting for any period of time. And then I think when doctors go into that room, they should be very careful that there are going to be no distractions. Simple things like turning off mobile phones, turning off pages are an absolute prerequisite. And then once you go into the room, I think it's very important that you very quickly conduct the round of introductions. It's important that the family are then seated. And then I think you really do need to get to the nitty-gritty of what's happened quickly. And typically, the way we would do that is that we would give the family some warning notes so that we would always say something along the lines of, I'm sorry to have to say we have some very um, bad news for you. Uh, and then having given that warning, we would then directly tell the family that their son or daughter had died. Uh, and we would use words like that, died or dead, rather than any sort of the common euphemisms like passed away. In this particular scenario where it's definitely going to be the subject of a police investigation, what are some forms of words or phrases that you might use to explain both the process and what they might expect uh, when they come to view the body? Invariably, um, the, the family are in a state of great distress. Often you find that there may be family members who are less uh, affected than direct next of kin, and they may be more able to hear about the processes. But I think it's quite important to convey to the family at this point what um, their son will look like. And I think it's also very important that someone accompanies them to their son and that there is some seating arrangements around the bed so that they can sit down uh, and be with their son uh, during that time. 
And it's probably a good opportunity at this juncture to also ask the family if there are any particular religious or spiritual Yeah, that, that's a, that, that again is, is an important issue. Some religious imperatives really, particularly from people from the Muslim and Jewish communities, dictate that ideally nobody other than people from the same community should be handling the body, uh, washing the body or laying out the body. I think it's always wise to inquire at around the time that you've disclosed the fact of death Uh, as to whether there are any particular religious observances or other observances which the family would like to uh, put in place and then to see um, if in any way you know you can accommodate or at least the hospital uh, can accommodate those um, those uh, requirements and i suppose sometimes it can require some negotiation if for instance in a forensic case like this there are legal requirements around uh, what's possible as well yeah absolutely and regardless of our religious persuasion we are still all ruled by the laws of the land and generally speaking in our experience families of whatever religious persuasion understand that trying to find the perpetrator of this and and trying to bring that person to justice is is very important I'd like to take the discussion now to a slightly uh, different tangent, and and that is the issue of death certificates. Uh, And again, I I recall that as a junior doctor, I was never really taught um, when I should be writing one and when I should not be writing one, and what exactly I should be writing on it. And I tended to learn by example. So uh, perhaps you'd like to take us through the the ins and outs of writing a death certificate. I think the first thing to say is that if there's any suggestion that uh, the death needs to be referred to the coroner, then typically you shouldn't be filling out uh, a um, medical certificate for cause of death. And there are some obvious red flags that should prompt you to remember that this is likely to be a coronal referral. And then I think that the best way to address... um, Other deaths are are to ask yourselves, uh, as a junior doctor, a series of questions. And the first would be, that: do do you have appropriate registration? In other words, are you the appropriate person to be filling out this death certificate? Uh, And that's interesting because, of course, in in strict interpretation of the Medical Act of 1983, you have to be a, a fully registered practitioner to complete an MCCD. The next thing that sometimes causes some uh, confusion is the issue of attendance during the last illness. Um, And again, this um, is somewhat ill-defined. There isn't any strict uh, definition uh, uh, of what the last illness uh, constitutes. Uh, And so in practice, if you haven't attended the patient uh, during the two weeks before the death, then those deaths will be typically referred to the coroner. And again, it would be unreasonable or not incorrect, actually, for you to complete the medical certificate of the cause of death. You do need to see the body after death. I mean, that, that um, although interestingly isn't a statutory obligation, it's just good sense uh, to do that, to determine the identity and the fact of death, um, and obviously to satisfy yourself of, uh, of the cause of death. Um, and then, of course, you, you have to have sufficient information about the patient and the circumstances of the death to make a confident diagnosis of cause. Um, and I think it's quite helpful here to, to consult again with uh, senior colleagues. Thank you. That's very helpful. Now, to return to our scenario, you've verified death, you've talked to the family and spent some time with them, 
you've made a decision that this is a coroner's case and decided that it's inappropriate to write a death certificate here. Um, what next, Paul? I think there are certain things that the junior doctor has to do. One, of course, is to inform the general practitioner, although in some hospitals other people to take this responsibility. I think it's very helpful if the junior doctor does this because, of course, if they need to have an informed discussion with the general practitioner as to the cause of death, they're probably best placed to do it. And I think it's important, too, that um, the uh, hospital service recognise the very uh, crucial role that the general practitioner will have in managing the aftermath of the death. So I think that's incredibly important. The second thing I would say is that the junior doctor invariably, and indeed any doctor, will be affected uh, by this death. Um, And this can cause uh, all sorts of problems, really, unless it's dealt with in the proper way. Um, And that can can play on their minds. And, And, of course, that sort of thing can contribute to to, to burnout. So I I think it's very important that the junior doctor takes the opportunity to discuss these issues with senior colleagues. Thank you, Paul, for taking us through what is often a, a very difficult area of practice for junior doctors. Thank you very much for asking me. And you can read that and other competent novice articles online on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be coming to you from the south of France with some interviews from the BMJ's annual International Forum on Quality and Safety in Healthcare. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.